0: This is Travel Wise, the travel podcast for growth hungry entrepreneurs. Join us as we explore travel, continuous learning, and the psychology of flow. Ready for takeoff? Ask me why. Welcome, everybody, to 52 Living Ideas. I am not your host, Shukan, but I am Joya, and I will be leading us through our discussion today, and as always, we are going to follow the rules that everybody knows here for 52 Living Ideas. We are on Chapter 2 of our exploration of this book, Flow, the Psychology of Optimal Experience by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, whom I always just call MC because... Yeah, as Dave was pointing out, otherwise it does just sound like you're sneezing. So we are going to get started. This conversation, it's welcome and open for everyone, whether you've read the book or not. But first, I thought it would be great just to even have a sense of who has read the book. So we know, it looks like we've got some familiar faces in the audience who've been here for our first couple meetings, and it looks like we might have some new people as well. So if you have read the book, if you've read chapter two, if you could just type exclamation point in the chat so we see where everyone's at and how people, how familiar people are with the book today. I like Dave's response, half, <laughs> halfway through the chapter. I actually think the second half of the chapter is better than the first, as good as the first half is. So you even have a lot to look forward to, I think. <laughs> Three quarters. Perfect. <laughs> right, so it's great. So we're gonna start out. Maritza actually prepared a PowerPoint presentation for us today, just to go through the chapter, be a quick little review of what came first for people who weren't here. And it's been a couple weeks since we did chapter one. So I am going to turn it over to Maritza and her presentation to get us started.
1: All right, guys, give me just a second here and I'll get it set up for you. Okay, is everyone seeing the screen here?
2: Yes,
1: we can. Mm -hmm. Looks good. All right, fantastic. So this is... um, you know we're going into flow, the psychology of optimal experience. Just a little bit of reviews for the general premise of the book and the concept is uh, this one page here on page four. Um, MC, I'm totally stealing her MC cheats here. So MC defines flow as a state in which people are so involved in an activity that nothing else seems to matter. The experience is so enjoyable that people will continue to do it even at great cost for the sheer sake of doing it. And this um, will be reminiscent to anyone who's um, done uh, some sport that they got really into or any hobby or activity that so engages you that you lose track of time, you forget your problems, your woes, you might forget to sleep, to eat. This is the, that's the um, part that we're speaking of. We're talking of entering in that zone there. So these um, steps here, I'm not gonna spend a whole bunch of time on them. We will return to them again and again as we go through the book. Um, but these are um, just different elements that are all a part for achieving flow. Um, and I'm, I'm not gonna read them. I can go ahead and add this um, PowerPoint to our chat um, on the main uh, meetup page uh, later, but we will we'll come back to this page. Uh, this is just an introduction, a really quick recap for you of last week. These are the concepts that we discussed last week. And the biggest thing is here that, you know, if you're simply chasing happiness, you're never going to reach happiness. So instead, you know, you should um, chase experiences, chase other things, and let happiness be a lovely byproduct. And, And you'll find that you achieve more success that way. So again, I'm leaving this up for you guys for a minute. I I don't know that I necessarily need to read all of them for you. You know what? I lied. Can you read through
0: some of them? Because this is, (laughs) so we have the video and we should mention that this is also going to be in audio format as well, because we're combining this with the new podcast I started, which is called Travel Wise, which is exploring flow with travel and continuous learning. So for anyone who might just be listening, we can just yes, some of yes, the important yes. bullet points here.
1: So, so, right. So the most important one here to me actually is Victor Frankl's quote here. For success like happiness cannot be pursued, it must ensue as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a course greater than oneself. I think that's really beautifully stated. And it's, that one's one of my favorites from the first chapter.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: We're also told here that happiness in fact is a condition that must be prepared for, cultivated and defended privately by each person. In other words, your happiness cannot look just like mine. That's a near impossibility. People who learn to control inner experience will be able to determine the quality of their lives, which is as close as any of us can come to be unhappy. And the uh, last bullet here says the best moments usually occur when a person's body or mind is stretched to its limit in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. For any of you there who are runners or have run at some point in your lives, that's so clear. You know, when you just don't know that you can make it, but you decide to just put your all and give it that last push. And you make your goal of however many miles your goal was that just that adrenaline rush of making it, pushing yourself beyond what you thought you could do and doing it. I believe that's what's being described there in that bullet. All right, folks. So now chapter two, the anatomy of consciousness. I will say that I find that I really do like the labels used here in this book thus far. I think that um, he did a very good job in setting the stage with each section for the labels. So this is called the anatomy of consciousness and we're literally doing just that. All right, so um, I set up the slides here today to walk you through all the separate sections in chapter two. There are several of them Um, in the, the very first part, didn't have a name, Joya and I both agreed that definitely what he's asking us is, what is consciousness? He doesn't need you to ponder on it overly hard because he actually gives you the answer. So the setup for each one of my slides is the same. I picked one of my favorite um, passages from the book, and I threw it on the top as a quote. And then at the bottom, I gave you some bullet points for what was covered in that section. So, that's kind of my cheat because now I get to show off my, and showcase my favorite quote. <laughs> I'm gonna read the first one here for you. This is at the, in, this is in the beginning of chapter two. Uh, so uh, MC tells us, to begin with, and just to clear the air of any suspicion that in talking about consciousness, we are referring to some mysterious process. We should recognize that, like every other dimension of human behavior, it is the result of a biological process. So this here is almost like a disclaimer. Why do I love this quote? Because it allows us to set aside all of our mystical ponderance. Reading this quote, I am not willing to never consider consciousness as a potential mystical thing. But in this instance, for the purposes of contemplating MC's thoughts and philosophies, he's asking us to approach it from the perspective of consciousness as a biological process. So he's kind of set the stage for us. And um, the way I view it is this is kind of like, when you set your assumptions up when you're doing analyses, that's what he's doing here. He's setting up this as an axiomatic statement for himself. So then, you know, when we ask ourselves, what is consciousness? Again, we start with this axiomatic statement. It's the result of a biological comp- process. But we also need to understand that it's, it's the product of an incredibly complex nervous system, and it cannot be entirely captured just by saying it's by our nervous system. Because what happens is that it's also independent of its genetic blueprint. And it has been found to be able to override its genetic instructions. And because of that, we do consider con- consciousness to be self-directed. I like the way MC states it. He tells us that it, the consciousness functions as a clearinghouse for sensations, perceptions, feelings, and ideas. And he, he uses all of these things for consciousness to tell us that or to introduce to us this concept of information. And what he's saying is that this, in this section, he's explaining to you that consciousness is a holding source, as it were, for information. And not just any, any random information, but a just kind of melting pot a variety of different types and flavors of information that are coming at us through different biological processes. So he's setting the stage for us. Can you feel the excitement building? The next thing we're asking as well, once he's told us it's this all powerful thing and it gets all this information, he says, but wait, if we consider the amount of data the brain could theoretically process, the number might be too low. But if we look at how people actually use their minds, it is definitely much too high. In any case, an individual can only, I mean, I'm sorry, can experience only so much. So this is a little bit of a odd quote. So what he's telling us here is he goes through and he does spend quite some time in this section explaining to us how we don't actually know the exact processing rates for how we can hold information and how much information we can hold in mind at one time. He gives us some scientific jargon and he explains what we do know. And then he, he goes on and he makes it very clear his disdain for television because he tells us that we, with the, the time we do have, we waste a whole lot of it, doing mindless activities, which require very little processing power, basically, is what he's saying to you. So that's reflected here in this quote, because what he's saying to us is we don't exactly know how much we can process, but we do know that a lot of times people are not using the maximum ability to process that they have. And he's saying that And that's his roundabout way of explaining to us that there are limits, that it's not a matter of we have infinite resources. Hopefully most of us don't actually believe that most resources are infinite anyway. um, I like the simple statement that thoughts have to follow each other or they get jumbled, that should be jumbled, sorry. And so what he's telling us here is that the, the, So 15% of your consciousness goes into basic required functionality. And so it's kind of when you're looking here or like straight on, it's harder to look elsewhere. And that's what he's explaining to us here. The limits of consciousness are such that when one is engaging in a task that requires higher and higher levels of our energy, which we're gonna discuss a little more as we go on. And I almost feel like this one's out of order. This one should should have come a little later in the chapter. So as we're processing all this information, we're limited in the new information that we can process or in processing different types of information for different purposes. To me, that almost feels like common sense, but he's setting a stage for us. So let's move on. Now we get to this energy concept. Psychic energy is a very sexy and fancy sounding word. He uses it almost synonymously with attention. So I have seen him use them interchangeably. So if you hear him say attention, assume that he also is meaning this psychic energy. And and it does bear saying that He's not making it negative or positive. He's, it's, this is just raw energy, like raw data. The quote I pulled out from here was that attention is like energy in that without it, no work can be done. And in doing work, it is dissipated. We create ourselves by how we invest this energy. Memories, thoughts, and feelings are all shaped by how we use it. And it it is an energy under our control to do with as we please. Hence, attention is our most important tool in the task of improving the quality of experience." I love that he uses the word tool here. Because this, again, we're getting towards the heart of what he's trying, or at least what I believe he's trying to express to us. We have these things already at our disposal, at our disposal. What we're looking into as we walk through this book with him is we're considering ways in which we can more effectively wield those things already at our disposal. So, you know, he does state to us, he says, information enters consciousness either because we intend to focus attention on it or as a result of attentional habits based on biological or social instructions. I do find it important and I was gratified to see that he included social instructions because we are not only privy to our biological nature, we are social creatures, we are community creatures, we do Walk a path that is not alone, and there is there should be high importance placed on those types of um, things. So I really do like that in this section. He does specify social instruction, and he uses the phrase attentional habits because that's not further further um talked about in this chapter. It may as we go forward, but you know it, it if it's a habit that's come from outside. The fact that it's a habit means we've internalized it. We've made it our own. Um, So he does, and he does again, he he reminds you again, we're limited, you can only do but so much at a time. And he states that we're the one who allocates how much is used where and when with the exception, obviously, of the 15% we already identified that goes to those needs for eating and, you know, bodily functions and all of that. And this last statement here, is it's, it's so, like, softly stated, but it's so impactful. The shape and content of life depend on how attention has been used. Let's reread that with energy instead of attention. The shape and content of life depend on how psychic energy has been used. We have the energy,
2: we all have it. How are we using it? How are we wielding this tool for our betterment and improvement? That takes us to the self, right? I love that he
1: goes from, you know, we're talking about attention, psychic energy, And then the way in which he introduces the self, he says, enter the self. Why? Because when you start thinking about the energy within you and how you're going to use it for the betterment of your own life and experiences, the I comes to play. Where's the me? Where's my id, my ego? You know, if we're going to be talking about these concepts, we we need to, you know, talk about the I. There are so many really good sections in this small, it's, a very, it's, it's very short. It's only like two and a half pages, but there's, I highlighted quite a bit in this section. The one I put up here is my favorite because of the thing that he points out to us. He tells us consciousness is not a strictly linear system, but one in which circular causality obtains Attention shapes the self and is in turn shaped by it. That's another line I think bears repeating. Attention shapes the self and is in turn shaped by it. What do we mean by that? I mean, he was just telling us that you know, the, all these other things, is he just saying that now we're going around chasing our tails? Basically, yes, he is, because what he's telling us is that experience depends on the way in which we invest psychic energy. And this investment then is what is is used in the formation of our goals and our intentions. And then you use all of that together, though, when you are you make, putting it into action, as it were. So the two processes are connected by the self. The self is the connecting glue, as it were, for your energy and your goals, as it were. Hopefully... That makes sense to you. That's the way I understood it. Um, It's, and then in this with him bringing in the self and and saying that the self resides in our consciousness. I like that he says one's, well, he doesn't say it this way. I rephrase it a little bit because he says it for your, right? But I made it a little more for everyone. I said one's own self exists solely in one's own consciousness what i find that is telling us it's reminding us that you sh- you shape yourself you even though external influences will also help to shape them the it it lives yourself lives within you and you and you're con- in your consciousness and that's what he's telling us um he also says that it's he points out, and this makes perfect sense to me the idea that yourself is your goals that you've had year after year. And it makes sense because our self goes changing, expanding, growing, shifting. And, and that's going to happen because our goals continue expanding, shifting, and growing. The, um, he, he also tells us that, you know, he says the self is the sum of the contents of consciousness and the structure of its ghost. That's a far more eloquent way. I should have read that before I tried to say it in my own words. Sorry guys, I'm still learning. We're learning together. I'm gonna move on. <laughs> now, now that he's told us about the South and we're all like, I see these connections. Well, then he takes us to, it's like, I almost feel like there should be like, you know the bad sound of, you know, in a movie, in a, bad, in a, in a B movie when the bad stuff is coming. This is where we are here. He's telling us now that, because let's not forget that he's when he was talking about psychic energy, he was telling us that consciousness likes ordered information. So now he's telling us a new piece of information will either create disorder in consciousness by getting us all worked up to face the threat, or will reinforce our goals, therefore, freeing up psychic energy. This is a fancy way of saying that when you get something new, you have to determine if you can reconcile it with your worldview or not. If not, you have dissonance. Where there's dissonance, where there's chaos, I'm sorry, chaos, you have to divert more energy You have to pour energy into this dissonance to work through it. And only once you've worked through that can you move forward and continue moving on your path, you know, towards those things that you desire or your goals and those things that are your intentions as well. That's what he's telling us here, basically. He's saying where there's dissonance, there's not forward momentum because you have to. Be direct your energy. Remember the goal of the book, the title is the psychology of optimal experience. So if we want to get to optimal experience, we have to find ways to minimize those times we spend diverting all of our energy to dissonance because while you're doing that, your forward momentum is paused. That's what he's telling us here. Um, and, and by viewing it in that way, we can avoid the really negative connotation that one hears when he, one hears like psychic entropy. Entropy gets a bad rep. It really is not a happy-sounding word. It's just not. But I don't because I'm a believer in the need for balance, and you know, several of you here have walked with me as we've been discussing the concepts of yin and yang, and as such. I don't necessarily see this as a bad thing. This could potentially be bad if you get stuck. But because we've already determined that there's a circular aspect to energy and self, well, then it's going it's to come back. You have to divert your energy to address the dissonance. And then you're going to go back on your path. The problem happens if you don't get back on your path. And I think that's, that's here where this section could be viewed more as a cautionary tale for, you know not necessarily getting stuck as it were. Um, I like, he, he states in this section, he does say, every piece of information we process gets evaluated for its bearing on the self. Does it threaten our goals? Does it support them? Or is it neutral? I feel like that's something we do constantly, every day, perpetually for everything. That's just a normal path that we take. And where this concept of psychic entropy as a potential problem exists is where you can't get past the answer to one of those questions being yes. If you say yes, and you can't find a way around that. Well, now all your energy is just pooling in a dissonant spot and that's it's no way to go because now you're stuck in chaos. You have to find your way back to some semblance of order or slight order. And that's what he's telling us here. Speaking of order, the next section is order and consciousness flow. In this section, he gives an ex- now he does give many examples, and I've kind of totally glossed over all of them. There's value to the examples. Um I've glossed over them just because i I honestly didn't feel that they were as pertinent to the grasping of what he was trying to say. In this section, I am going to briefly mention the one example he gave because I do think that it's a little more pertinent to the quote I've posted here. He talks about one of his his respondents and they did, um, this is a study that he was doing and he has somebody who was was a participant. And this person is a well-known West Coast rock climber. And the rock climber um, explained how he viewed the tie between the avocation that gives him a profound sense of flow and the rest of his life. And the statement that he makes is um, the quote that I posted here in this slide is a response to the statement by this climber. The climber tells us, it's exhilarating to come closer and closer to self-discipline. You make your body go and everything hurts. Then you look back in awe at, at the self, at what you've done, and it just blows your mind. It leads to ecstasy, to self fulfillment. If you win these battles enough, the battle against yourself, at least for a moment, it becomes easier to win the battles in the world. And MC tells us the battle is not really against the self, but against the entropy that brings disorder to consciousness it is really a battle for the self it is a struggle for establishing control over attention i have to admit to you guys every other time i read this i disagree with him and all the other times i agree with him why because i feel what that climber is saying It is a battle against myself. I have to battle myself sometimes to get forward, to put one step in front of the other some days requires me to fight myself. So why MC, why are you saying it's not a battle against the self? I tell you it is, I've lived it, right? So this is why I disagree with him. And yet I also resonate with this concept that no, no, wait, it's a battle for the self. A battle for establishing control over attention. And if you remember that you can replace the word attention for psychic energy, think about those times when it took all of your energy, every little bit of energy you had to do this one thing that you knew had to be done that you didn't think you could. But it was for yourself. And that's what he's saying here. So I Again, a lot of things in life are not either or situations. So in this one, I don't think it's a matter of agreeing or disagreeing. I think that in life, we are going to find times where we both agree and disagree with the statement here. And that, to me, makes sense because we are not creatures that are ever going to only live in order. In my mind, and I haven't read enough yet to know if. MC is gonna disagree with me. And if Joya disagrees with me, she can chime in hopefully. Um, But I believe we are creatures of both order and chaos. So we will slide one way and hopefully slide back. And this section here is stating the beauty of finding our way back to order when we've resided in chaos. That I can get behind. I do like that. Um, and, and it's what he's saying. You know, he says it far more eloquently than I do when he tells us that when the information that keeps coming into your awareness, remember into your consciousness, like everything that's feeding you when it's congruent with your goals, your worldview, well, then everything, You know, your energy is easy. It's easy to be full of energy. It's easy to focus your attention in that same spot because everything is all happy in Kumbaya. And, and he says the positive feedback strengthens the self and more attention is freed to deal with the outer and the inner environment. Interestingly enough, the in the next section, he talks about how naturally when, when you've had to, when you've had to fight and you've had Hard times, the self is strengthened and made stronger. And I'm hearing that that is in accordance with my idea of this ebb and flow, the natural order of life with order and chaos. So, in the last section here in this chapter, is complexity and the growth of the self. And the quote here that I've for this section is the self becomes complex as a result of experienced flow. What we were just saying, right? Interestingly enough, he says paradoxically, it is when we act freely for the sake of the action itself rather than for ulterior motives that we learn to become more than what we were. When we choose a goal and invest ourselves in it to the limits of our concentration, whatever we do will be enjoyable. And once we have tasted this joy, we will redouble our efforts to taste it again. This is the way the self grows. This might be a little overly optimistic, and yet I see such beauty in it. The idea that be high from attaining this goal. Is all I need to spur me forward to continue to attain my goal? I I see beauty in that. Maybe it requires more defining and more explanations but this is chapter two. There's plenty of room for growth and expansion. So I really like this quote, but it does leave me wanting to see more. He he goes into two concepts here, and I only very briefly mentioned them in the bullets. He talks about differentiation and integration. He, ta- he says complexity is the result of two broad psychological processes. And for di- he he defines differentiation as uniqueness is separating from others and he defines integration as a union with other people ideas and entities and those two concepts i think could be expanded on really for an entire meetup just by themselves personally um so but I, i'm not going to do that here i won't do you like that the um <laughs> But the second bullet here is what I was just saying in a previous slide. The self becomes more differentiated as a result of flow because overcoming a challenge inevitably leaves a person feeling more capable, more skilled. That to me is a little bit more realistic and less optimistic than this idea that, you know, once you're, you're gonna do whatever you can to taste this high again. This one says that, you know, once you've overcome a hardship, you are stronger because now you know you can. You know you can do this, you did it. And flow helps to integrate the self because in that state of deep concentration, consciousness is unusually well-ordered. Thoughts, intentions, feelings, and all senses Are focused on the same goal. We can see here that MC is quite the fan of order. The goal is order. And the reason being is because in flow, there's order. So, what we're learning as we walk with him is how can we control the way in which to point towards and reach some some type of order that will invariably look different for each of us Um, so that's kind of what he's saying to us at least from my perspective in chapter two and um so thank you guys i hope this was helpful and um joya go for it i've talked enough
0: Wow, so that was amazing. I love how you were able to pull out all of the important key points that MC makes in the chapter and also weave in your own responses and reflections on what it is that he's saying. So next we're gonna open it up to the group. We're gonna start with people who have read the book, read the chapter, like even if you've only read it halfway through or three quarters of the way through. I know Maritza mentioned that, for example, MC includes a lot of examples that she didn't get a chance to talk about. Maybe there's something, one of Maritza's comments that you disagree with or something she didn't mention. So first, we're just going to take an opportunity to hear from people who have read the book. And I do want to stress that the meetup is definitely open to everyone, whether you've read the book or not. I think as Maritza even beautifully pointed out, flow is one of these truly human experiences that we've all had. You don't need to read this book to know about flow, but hopefully through reading the book, it's giving us a way to reflect more deeply on these ideas and perhaps how we can add more flow and improve the quality of our own lives by adding more order to our consciousness, as I think Chuset Csikszentmihalyi would say it. So Folks, what we're gonna do next, if you would like to talk, you can raise your hand or type exclamation point in the chat. For people who may be new here, we have four rules at 52 Living Ideas. The first one is raise your hand or type exclamation point in the chat if you wanna speak. That's the first rule. Rule number two is keep it brief. We have a bunch of people on this call. There's a lot of different voices to hear, a lot of interesting thoughts I think we're gonna have on this topic rule number three is to keep on topic we are talking about flow specifically chapter two of the book and the last point is feel free to disagree with anyone about anything, but please do keep it courteous. Okay, and so the first person who is going to speak is uh Jyoti and I just have to get good about being able to unmute everybody okay. There, I think Jyoti should be able to speak. Yeah,
4: I'm in flow now. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Um, I like this book. Firstly, it is very um, straightforward. There's no jargon, use of jargon that will throw you off a little bit. Um, And he um, says this question about consciousness uh, is ancestral question. There were a lot of uh, you know yogis and uh, saints and uh, you name it, and they were always questioning what exactly is consciousness. And I think he explained it very well uh, in one of his one of the pages. I don't remember what page number it was. That consciousness is there; it's within you all the time, even when you are sleeping and when you are dreaming. You hear about somebody's, you dream about somebody's accident and you are helpless. You can't do anything. And, but during the daytime, you have all all that consciousness and that you can manipulate. The thing that you could not manipulate at night, but you can do something with it now. So they are your perceptions. They are the experiences, thoughts and feelings that are in your control. And I thought that was a beautiful way of distinguishing between the dream stage and, uh, uh, and uh, doing stage, that consciousness is there. And well, that's, that's basically what my point is. And, and also I like what he said, that when you have enough discipline of mind, people look at you very weird. Whenever you can control yourself, especially in the Western culture, whenever you can control your thoughts and and uh, uh, thoughts and perceptions, but, and people think you should be a free will, you should be able to do it, or do whatever you want to do it. But that doesn't necessarily lead you to happiness. Happiness is when you are disciplined and you are transforming your sight, uh, yourself. And I think I also read that a little bit in Jordan Peterson. He said the same thing, that the people who can bring about a transformation in their life through their thoughts, through their experiences, and through their discipline of mind, they enjoy a lot of happiness in life. And I think I, he didn't say it in the flow, it doesn't say it in so many words, but I think there is some similarity there. So that's my point right now. But as we go along, i will I'll just jog my memory and pull out some more. <laughs> okay, thank you.
0: Thank you, Jyoti. Next up, we have Dave.
2: Thank you, Joya. Maritza, thanks for giving the presentation. I don't wanna be critical. I wanna give you some constructive criticism about process your slides, you had a quotation on top, and then you had main points to cover. But while you were the time, I could look at the time, of the main points to cover, you were talking, I think about your understanding of the points. I can either listen to you, or I can read the information on the slide. I can't do both. So either put what you want to communicate to us on the slide, or let us just read the slide. Uh, I just, you know, it's, it's an attention, and it's a consciousness, and a complication. but I'm, I don't want to be critical, but I'm just saying, as your future presentation, I, I hope you consider doing it that way. Thank you. And it's a great book.
0: Oh, thanks for the, this was our first time trying the presentation. So we definitely need all the feedback we can get. We're hoping, and it was, we're we're even trying to figure out how do we do this balance between making sure we present the ideas so that people who haven't had an opportunity to read the book actually have some of the meat, because I think Dave, you're making a point that the book really is very rich and there's a lot of good content in the book. So how do we both have the content? And then also Maritza, you know, wants to share her reflections and thoughts about the content too. So definitely something we'll... Do better next time thank you for the feedback okay next up is Judith okay well
5: I was just gonna thank Maritza because I thought she did a great job I thought the slides were up long enough so that I could read them and listen to her you know it is kind of you do have to read and listen but they were up long enough so that I could be listening to her and reading them I also wanted to thank her because um, I it. It's been like two weeks since I've read that chapter. And so I was coming to the meeting thinking, I don't remember really what I read. So it just highlighted so many, and she picked out quotes that struck me also. I love the quotes she picked out. Um, You know, the idea that um, it's a biological process. Um, I liked, um, in terms of what the um, author wrote, that. uh, just is very empowering. The, the, the way he presents things is just very empowering, like Joy T said, that, um, you know, in your dreams you have no control, but in your life you do. So, um, and how you choose your energy, um, that's really up to you. So that's a lot of control you have. You don't have control over many things, but, but when you become aware of all the ways you do have control, over how your attitude or how you want to approach or what you want to approach or what you want to say no to, what you want to say yes to, that's really good to be aware of. So I'm enjoying very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Judith. Next up is Michael.
3: Yeah, thanks so much, uh, Maritza. Great job introducing uh, the chapters and all. Um, I, I really took away a lot from his idea of turning the mundane into something traumatic and exciting. So the the gentleman that was working in the factory is repeating the same process over and over and over all day. And one aspect or one outlook could be, yeah, this is really boring. I'm doing this eight hours a day, it's the same thing. But what he ended up doing is trying to break his own record and he's going into the process and he's speeding it up and he's getting bonuses because of it. So his day is not mundane at all. I don't really see a difference in his mindset between him. I think they even compared it to being in the Olympics. He made it like his own Olympics. So yeah, you're doing something that the outsider would view as mundane, but internally you are actually performing something. It reminded me of, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Million Dollar Baby with Hilary Swank. And as she's learning how to box, when Clint Eastwood eventually takes her on, she was a waitress and she's serving dishes and collecting money. But as she's doing it, she's actually they show a clip of her feet, balancing left and right. She's actually practicing her bobbing and weaving as she's serving her plate. So I just those two connected to me. So I love the love the book in the chapter. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Michael. Just a quick reminder, if anyone else does want to speak, you can raise your hand like Phil is doing or type exclamation point in the chapter. And next up is Phil.
6: Well, it seems to me uh, he's saying, in in a sort of uh, neurological terms, uh, so a kind of neuro, n- the science of neurology and brain science. Uh, what literature have been saying all along? I'm referring back. I'm referring back to uh, the Odyssey. I've always contended that the question about whether Odysseus was out for adventure to expand his horizon, to expand his horizon through adventure, or whether he's just trying to get home. It seems like those two poles drive us constantly because on the one hand, we want that period of support that sustains us, that makes the world whole. You could say a period of rest, and we also want to expand our horizons through periods of adventure. Even athletes understand that if you're constantly pumping iron, you don't get better. In fact, you have to have periods of repose and rest to do so. So that's, that's just natural because now in Greek, Greek mythology and Greek literature, in this case, you know. They have explanation for, for, I guess, this sort of subconscious self, in a way, is in a sense what they would call destiny that's driven by the gods, right? So in, in, in in a deeper sense, you could say they're more connected to the world in a deeper sense because they don't know consciously to a degree what they're doing because they're pushed by fate and destiny and that destiny uh, blows uh Odysseus just was trying to get back to Ithaca but he's blown out of the way into these adventures by fate which helped to which helps to expand his uh, horizon and his destiny and his growth as a human being we know that Odysseus is is quite an honor as a hero to all Greeks because of that but he was always trying to get home as well, right? Uh, The adventure was good, but it took him a long time to get home. And because of that struggle, he expanded his horizon. And that's why they honor him as a hero, because if he had stayed at home the whole time, they would not have honored him. But most people end up staying home because it's, well, it's just more comfortable to stay in your limited universe home but they were not helped by the gods in that sense. So the, the difference is really uh, the internalized psychology of neural networks versus the destinies uh, that is driven by the gods in a, in a different explanation.
0: Thanks for sharing, Phil. Okay, I think next we are gonna have time for breakout rooms. So. Moritz, do you wanna pull up the quote that we thought we could have people use as their question to discuss? So we're gonna break everyone out into groups of, probably it's gonna end up being about four or five people and give everybody about 15 minutes to add to the conversation. So Moritz is gonna pull up this quote, but you can feel free to bring up, talk about anything about the presentation, anything about the book or about flow but we thought we'd at least give you a prompt to get the conversation started. Oh, so do you wanna, so that, the quote says, attention shapes the self and is in turn shaped by it. So what are your thoughts about what, what he describes here as circular causality? It is a kind of spiral. It's too bad Ash is not here to jump in on our conversation all about spirals, because I know that's his favorite topic. But what, is, what are your thoughts? Maybe some of your own experiences about how this spiral might have shown up in your own life. So that is what we're going to discuss. And I will be starting the breakout rooms now. All right, folks, welcome back. Hopefully it was a really good breakout session, I think we've got everyone back now. So now it's time for our lightning question round. So what we do in this section of the meeting is we open up the floor for anyone to come on and ask your best question from what came, maybe thoughts from watching the presentation, what you discussed in your breakout rooms, Everyone gets to ask their best and favorite question. I'll make a list of all the questions and then we're gonna go through and try to answer as many as we can. So if you'd like to ask a question, please just type exclamation point in the chat room again or you can raise your hand. Or maybe nobody has any questions because everything was perfectly clear and Maritza gave the world's most perfect presentation. All right, it looks like, um, let's see, we've got questions first. I've got to make sure to unmute everyone here. First question is going to be from Phil, Margarita, and then Judith and Julie. So I think, yeah, it should be unmuted there, Phil?
6: Yeah, I I think he has a problem of defining happiness because at at the very minimum, he needs to say happiness one and happiness two, okay? Because because happiness is not just the moment of flow in which you experience this ecstatic pleasure that flows and say, you know, I'm, I'm really into it. But because he mentioned that there is also this aspect about the unfolding that requires you to confront a, a dissonance a suffering so to speak now suffering is by its nature contrary to happiness so therefore you have to arrive at at least at a happier happiness which he doesn't define he seemed to say happiness just sort of like gloss it over but in fact he has at least two different happiness, or better yet, a slightly a, a different word, such as you know, uh, uh, a kind of spiritual contentment or philosophical contentment rather than happiness, because we think of happiness as like, God, this hamburger tastes good. I'm really happy, right? That's not what, what he meant, because it does seem like, you know, you, even if you're playing music, you know, oh, this... This flow of the passage I did, that, that's really, really good. But there's also struggle because now you have to like do the other part, you have to write the music and, and do the contrariness. So, so that I've always felt that involves anxiety and suffering, which is completely different from happiness. So you have to put for, you have to put out a kind of temporal happiness in order to true what you might call true happiness and he needs to distinguish those two
0: so is it fair to say the question is what is the definition of happiness for mc
6: yeah i think okay. so he need he need to clarify let's just put it He need to clarify, clarify the definition the definition yes
0: got it all right next is Margareta. am i pronouncing your name correctly Yes, correct, Margareta. thank you. <laughs> uh,
7: so we, in our group, we discussed the, we agree that attention shaped the self and in turn shaped by it. However, we discussed about the question, so where we should place our attention mm-hmm. in our life, on what activity. And the second question, if I may say, uh, one of, I forgot the name, oh, but we ask also, can we recreate that uh, flow can we, we have to control on, on making it happen, build it or recreate it? Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. that's it. Got it, so where should we place attention? And then uh, can we recreate flow? Do we have to make it happen exactly. or yeah. just does it happen? Yeah, mm-hmm. good questions. All right, next up in, sorry, the questions, wait, sorry, just looking at the order here. Uh, next up is Judith. Julie and then Jyoti. We're back to all the J's again <laughs> going to make sure we're in order. Judith next.
5: Thank you. Um, so in our group, we talked about many things, but um, one thing that was um, kind of a theme was the min- mundane, like the factory worker um, that uh, was in that chapter, which I can't find right now, but that um, as I recall, he was, um, you know, Really in flow doing his work, but he had bigger and higher goals. So, I'm we're kind of all intrigued um, at the idea that um, flow can be part of our daily lives in areas that aren't necessarily, you know, at the moments that we're doing art or sports or something. So, how um, would we bring that in to um, our activities? Is it that we have to? Um, really focus our attention on the activity because we are aware that there's a bigger goal, it serves a purpose in our lives somehow, or I just don't really know how to form my question, but just kind of like, <laughs> um, what is, where is the place of um, flow within the mundane tasks that we do in our daily lives?
0: So I'll summarize that as like, how do we get flow in daily life, especially in the parts that seem otherwise boring and routine? yes thank you that is
5: good thank you yeah
0: next we've got julie hi
8: um it's been pretty i I read this book a long time ago like when it came out and it really hit me um and i believe that um people when i really believe that people are coming from either love or fear and when fear is present that's it's up you know and that when you're in the flow state, it's bigger than your fear. I know I've had it in different types of situations where I'm brought, I've, I forget myself. And in that situation, I seem to be a channel for wisdom or whatever, you know, I have access to powers to be on myself. Um, so my question is, and to me, if you're, if you know your purpose and you're living it, it comes much more easily because you're doing something you love naturally and you can forget yourself and, you know, Olympic athletes or whatever um i'm curious about different ways that we can induce flow um ourselves in situations that may not necessarily involve our gifts um Mm -hmm. and in our daily life so i'd love to hear examples of that
0: so the question is how do we induce flow in our daily lives and perhaps what's it it, it's connection to fear and, and to purpose got it next we have jyoti and then kimberly
4: Yeah, my question, I don't know how to put it. If a human being has had a number of sufferings in life and after after each suffering, the human being, a person has worked hard to establish flow. And once that flow has been established, another suffering comes and then that flow, the quality of that flow goes down. So I guess the question that I'm I'm asking you now is while you are processing your thoughts and emotions and you are gaining your composure, how do you go back to the quality flow that you had before that should resemble before? How do you do that? Because every suffering brings uh, with you another devastation of the thoughts and feelings. And how do you, and maybe perhaps your flow before the devastation was A, quality quality A. How do you go back to quality A?
0: So after suffering, how do we go back to a high feeling of flow that we had before when suffering can be so devastating? Right, thank you. Got it. Next we have Kimberly. Myself.
8: So um, mine was more common in my group. I can rephrase it as a question. So one of those initial slides talked about um, that when you're engaging in flow, it has to be something difficult and worthwhile. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it, and I have a perfect example I shared with them when I was at 3M, I created a creativity and innovation network. And it really wasn't that difficult for me. Maybe I just already had the skills to do it but it was very worthwhile to me. It was extremely worthwhile. And also you can get flow that way too. You don't have to be like that mountain climber and get flow, you can get flow other ways. That's just my experience. So.
0: So the question is then about getting flow from something worthwhile, even if it's not necessarily something that's so difficult. Difficult, correct. Right, all right, next we have Michael and then it looks like another question from Phil.
3: My question would be, um, how is flow experienced in, during life and death situations? For example, people who, whether you're in the military or firefighter, police officers, emer- emergency room surgeons. In our group, we, we went from talking about the mundane to uh, Alex Honnold, who was the free soloist who climbed incredibly high peaks with nothing but chalk and shoes. So I'm just wondering at there's life and death literally on the line how does flow circulate in in that realm
0: so when there's life and death on the line how does flow part of that experience question all right next so we have another one from phil and then jeff
6: yeah i want to ask a question about when you expand your world through struggle and whatever is the expanding a lateral expansion, another other words, expanding the, uh, the, the linear uh, nature of your understanding, uh, th- the quantitative measure, or is that a measure of more like a spiral staircase that ascends in greater and greater height or greater and greater depth? You either put it this way. Is it a qualitative expansion or is it merely a quantitative expansion?
0: Got it. So, is expansion through struggle? Is it qualitative or quantitative? Got it. All right. Next is Jeff.
9: So, uh, um, I'm intrigued by um, sort of looking at at flow in relation to um, Viktor Frankl's. You know, the the space between. Um, stimulus and response, or, um, you know, Brian McVie's uh, mental interiority, sort of, you know, the cultivation there, and really the practice um, of being able to reframe one's experience in order to best serve, you know, oneself and others and whatever it is that you're trying to get done. So that, uh, you know, I think of all those things as sort of the same three ways to say a similar thing, and the relationship between them and flow.
0: So we have this experience of the space between stimulus and response. It's the, the, the idea that comes up in meditation, that you're able to enter into that space and, and reframe and, and have maybe some control over that, and then the connection to flow. Is that, that a good summary?
9: Yeah. I mean, it's probably, it, if I was going to focus on one thing, I might focus on the practice of reframing.
0: The practice of reframing specifically. Because that
9: assumes mental interiority and and, going, you know, and creating a space between stimulus and response. And so it's, it's really the practice of reframing um, to better serve oneself and one's relationships and whatever it is we're trying to achieve.
0: Got it. All right. Well, let's start seeing how many of these questions we can answer. We've got about a half an hour to answer some some of the questions. Let's even start. I'm going to put a pause on the question of getting clarity on defining happiness and give us a little teaser to next week because next week we're going to do a deep dive into the topic of happiness. And Maritza even gave us a little bit of a teaser with one of her first slides there where she went through a bunch of different characteristics that MC lays out, the, the characteristics of flow. And our next chapter is when we actually do this deep dive into all these different characteristics that that he gets into. So I think we're going to get a, a much better answer to this question of, of clarity about the definition of, of Csikszentmihalyi's view of flow when we get to our next chapter. So let's start uh, with the question even a- go back to the question we asked the group, which was about this spiral relationship of attention and the self. And there was this question of where is it that we place attention? So if if we're going to accept this model of the spiral of, of attention and flow, where do we place attention? Anybody have any thoughts about that? Oh yes, and yes, this is the lightning round. So please do keep your answers brief so we can hear from as many people as uh, we possibly can. So let me see, so last people are putting their exclamation points in or you can raise your hand. So first is Judith.
5: Well, um, I don't know where you wanna put your attention to achieve flow, but you have to be conscious that wherever you do put attention, it's absolutely circular. So you become what you choose to put your attention on and, and then you, I mean, that becomes a part of you and it influences you the next time. So where you choose to put your attention is very important. So I think before people put their attention, wherever that may be, they need to think about that. Like, do, is this where I want to put my attention right now? Um, and, and make that choice very consciously.
0: Thanks for sharing. All right. Next is Jyoti.
4: I think it's a reflex action about uh, attention. Um, However, uh, being a human being, you can rationalize it, whether you do want to, even if it is a reflex, do you really want to pay attention to this? Or there's something more important to you from what you have sought out from your previous experience or intuition or what have you. Uh, So you prioritize and you pay attention to that and that is something that will shape you. Uh, For example, nature, that's Mm -hmm. it. I will only say this much.
0: (laughs) Yeah, And connecting it back to to some of our other group discussions. Yes, (laughs) yes. I thought you
4: would remember. That's
1: why I didn't want to elaborate on it.
0: (laughs) Maritz, you have some thoughts about this one?
1: Yes. Uh, When considering the question of where to focus your attention, I think that's a very personal. answer it would differ for all of us i would say listen to yourself self actually and um place your attention where yourself directs and uh
8: follow your your path
0: nice answer thanks marissa and next up we have jack
8: so um as it relates to uh
4: what the author's talking about here with flow and optimal experience um on page six he says the optimal of inner experience is one in which there is order in consciousness. So he specifically says here, uh, this happens when psychic energy or attention is invested in realistic goals, skills, opportunities, and action. So those would be the four pillars of, of where you would focus your attention in order to reach flow or, you know, to gain the optimal experience, according to the author.
0: No, thank, that's a really helpful quote. Thank you for sharing that one. All right, next up we have Phil, it looks like raising his hand, and also Julie.
6: I think the moment you uh, put your flow in is when you uh, reach a moment of ambiguity, when you're conscious that you need to expand your world.
0: Okay. Okay. And then next we have Julie.
8: I think this is a comment to this question and also Jeff's. comment about reframing. Um, To me, it's all about our power of choice to pay attention to which thoughts, which activities, um, et cetera, um, make us feel lighter and which ones make us feel heavier. um, Like a plant, you know, is is our soul getting fed or are we unempowering ourselves Mm -hmm. in the world? So um, choosing or disciplining to our attention on things that are going to serve us in the world is going to be the way to go um and uh so i think that's great great news you know but you got to be mindful about what you know and i think that we're doing i think you know the author does say that he says flow is an expression of our our authentic selves so it could be a olympic thing or it could be a moment of speaking for the truth so
0: thanks. Thank you. I I especially like that distinction of focusing on what serves you versus what what might not serve you. Let's go to one of the next questions and talk about flow in daily life because there is this one example that point out that comes out in the book of someone who seems to have this extreme way of being able to take what would otherwise seem like boring routine work and turn it into a flow experience. So does anybody have any thoughts on maybe how you've been able to create or find flow in what might otherwise seem like the boring mundane routine parts of life or just any other thoughts about that question? Jyoti, going
4: first. I think how I tackle with this issue is I try to motivate myself because I always say, uh, this has to be done. And if I get this done, something else of my, my, uh, my liking will follow. But I can't get to something that I like to do unless I get this done. So I pay attention to what I'm doing and uh, I have already timed myself so that I can finish it in time so that I have something um, to look forward to later on. It could be either reading or doing a little drawing or uh, texting a friend or talking, anything. It could be anything but not this boring thing that I have to do in the morning, washing my dishes, putting them up in the, on the shelves. I hate that, I hate that, I hate that. But I know once I get that done and there's a feeling of um, organize, organization in my kitchen, then I can read or I can watch YouTube or I can do that. So that's, I always put my reward in front of me while I'm doing it. So that, that's how I develop a little flow. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Jyoti. I've, I've got to speak to your example because your example of doing the dishes. So I, I, I totally see your strategy of not focusing on the boring thing and instead putting your attention on what to look forward to next. But to me, dishes is one of those things that I've learned to, to, to turn into what I think really is a flow experience because it's all about being in the moment and being absorbed in the task. And I always credit my grandmother because she was the one who taught me how to do dishes. And she had this philosophy about doing the dishes that as long as the water was warm and soapy, that it can be kind of like a spa experience. And you just get into the sensation of your hands and the pleasure of the warm, soapy water. And that's how I turn the dishes specifically into a flow experience. Uh, looks like Maritza though has something to say about this one, also Phil and then Margareta next.
1: Um, you know, I'm not entirely saying that I always do this but um, I think it, it's a matter of again, reframing um, and changing your perspective because it's a matter of, okay, so I really don't wanna get up and go to work and do the same thing I did yesterday. And if that's the thought process, then the drudgery of getting up and going to work is like, oh, but, you know, I have a job. (laughs) I can pay for that comfortable, climate-controlled environment in which I don't want to leave. So when I think about that, well, now I'm more happy to get out of bed and to move forward with my day. I don't know if that's exactly the flow state, but I think that begins the, the ability to enter into a flow state. Because if you reframe the perspective, then now if you don't view it as drudgery, well then you can start to create something of it that will enable you to enter into flow.
0: That's a good point. I think we'll do the reframing question next, but first we still have answers from Phil and Margareta, and then Michael, it looks like he wants to answer this one as well. Phil next.
6: I think the first thing you have to do is you have to decide whether the thing that you are doing is part of the world that you want to be in. Mm -hmm. If it is, you will either see it as a duty or change your frame of reference to make it as happy as it could be. If it is not, you simply decide to walk away and leave the scene because it doesn't belong to the world you want to be in.
0: Mm-hmm. Margareta, you had some thoughts about this one too? Oh, hi, yes, uh,
7: for me, in the pursuit of uh, optimal life, uh, we have to have ammunition, but not only one, probably, and we need more. So there's one way we find a natural way. So for me, this is just like what Jyoti says, like mapping exercise. You see what are the activities that is kind of energy depleting that's probably not my flow, and there are activities that energy generating or generating calmness in my life, and I will take notice, there are some that generate high energy, medium level, low level, and I will use it, I'm a teacher, so I know, I'm I'm grateful that my work is actually one of my flow sources, so uh, I can access that when I need it <laughs> uh, but however there's second way too because you're not living in the ideal world all the time there are times that you have to do something <laughs> that you probably don't really like you know this is kind of energy depleting but uh, some people may call it reframing but I say it's it's about savoring the moment it's like exercise like building your muscle so, uh, for example, uh, I do something that this is menial for me, but for other people, maybe not. So I don't really like it, but there's this one second that I feel, oh, okay, la, I can do this. So I say, at the moment, oh, I can do it one second. And then maybe next day, like two seconds, I feel, oh, I'm better. And then third, uh, the third day, probably longer and longer. So it's like, Uh, It's not just by cognitive approach, but also about doing and creating that energy so it become your attention. There's something like that. Thanks.
0: I love how you've been able to connect this back to the concept of attention that we started the breakout rooms with, that that we, we can do this by bringing our attention to pay attention to what is it that gives us energy, what's draining us. And I like the connection to savoring as well flow is part of positive psychology and savoring is one of the, the key practices in positive psychology, gratitude and savoring to, to be in the moment, to, to make it a conscious intention to place your attention on the good things in life and the good things in the moment. Thank you for making all those connections. Okay, Michael has an answer next.
3: Yeah, uh, Joya, uh, we actually talked about washing dishes in our breakout room. My uh, my grandparents used to uh, sing when they were washing dishes, and they were definitely somewhere else other than with the soap and the and the dishes. So I really appreciate that. And then uh, just my point is, why can't we extend that to brushing our teeth, vacuuming the floor? You know, they they say you're supposed to brush your teeth for two minutes. So you know, I have a top and a bottom and the backside of both. So 30 seconds each. So if you have a mathematical mind, just make it a game. The next mm-hmm. thing you know, you're not just brushing your teeth; you're actually you know, breaking it down that way. Or uh, there's a ton of things you can do. Just apply it to to everything. Mowing the lawn, you see somebody, you know, cutting lines in their lawn. They're not just cutting the lawn. They're actually, you know, designing something. So do it everywhere, you know?
0: I love that you've been able to bring out a whole bunch of different examples. These are some of the tasks that I hate the most, but I'm going to try singing with vacuuming next time because vacuuming is one of my least favorite tasks and singing (laughs) is one of my personal favorite flow activities. So that, that one I'm going to try. Let's go to this question then now about flow and reframing experience. How does flow fit into this concept of finding the space between stimulus and response as Victor Frankl suggests and being able to reframe what it is that we do? Anybody have some answers for Jeff? Ritzi, you want to jump in here? Yeah,
1: I'll i jump in for a minute. Um, I the um this idea of reframing, you know, it's it's something I see it. It's kind of repeating in several of the different things that we um we've been uh, studying together here with the mm-hmm. fifty-two different ideas, and it's a you know it it does bring up. It's a matter of changing. I, I guess it's hmm, if I think of reframing for a mundane task i do think that it's it's a matter of not getting stuck in the negative if if one can see the good or maybe let's not use the word good because you know again using good or bad is another way of getting stuck in one perspective if if we change for example and um, joya mentioned she hates vacuuming um i solved that by not having carpets but um the the It's funny because when you said that, I was suddenly going, she's gonna try singing next time. Doesn't everybody (laughs) turn on their music like super loud to annoy the neighbors almost when it's cleaning time? I thought everybody did that. So it's, you know, for me, I have like, you know, certain amount of time every week that I I have like, you know, if Saturday is cleaning day from like, you know, nine to 12 in the morning, Okay, and I'm going to tell you guys, every Saturday from 9 to 12 is not cleaning day. But if it were, 9 to 12 in my house would have loud music. You would think I was having a party because I blare the music and I pop along. And I have viewed that time as an enjoyable time for myself, even when I did not live alone. When I lived with other people, I still did the same thing. And it became a routine for me. That was always enjoyable. So I have never felt that washing the floors or the dishes or dusting was a chore because for me it was just a little bit of time for myself that I, I kind of just enjoyed my own company and bopped around in the house doing that. So I, I really think that it's it's a matter of if we if we internalize, the positive aspects of that mundane task, which is in front of us, we cease to even be fully aware of the mundane aspects of them. And by the time you start to remember that it's just a mundane task, you're either mostly done
0: or done. I just want to share, I do to also play music, but this is probably why vacuuming is my least favorite task because vacuuming is so loud. So it just interrupts my ability to listen to music or sometimes I'm listening to podcasts and then you just can't hear it as well with the vacuum, but singing, I will try. And I do have to comment on what Jyoti said here that she practices balancing while she does dishes, which to me seems like a great feat of accomplishment because if I tried that, it would just be broken dishes all over the kitchen. <laughs> but next, we have Julie and Margareta who have some thoughts about answering this question. Julie, next.
8: Um, as far as like reframing, um, to me, the. the uh,
0: it... Oh, Did Julie breaking up there.
8: Oh um oh yeah think anyway, you okay so i have a choice at how i want to look at the situation it's going to be it's great news that i can choose to look at the instead of looking at the one person in the room who doesn't like me that i can look at the 29 people that do one is going to help me and be empowering and probably the second one's probably closer to the truth so um it's it's coming the whole world i think based on lies like separation we're not separate physics is showing that and um the truth really does set us free and it's all about unlearning lies that life has taught us and slowing down in time enough to to see what's going on inside us be honest and then choose differently when we have the power to come from a place of gratitude and empowerment which is also by the way in the moment because when we're in yesterday or tomorrow there's a component of fear and flow is all about being in the moment and forgetting ourselves,
0: so. I love how you're making the connection there between flow and coming from that place of empowerment and coming from gratitude. That's a huge part of the reframing. Margareta next. And then Jeff, I think has something to say here about his question.
7: Yes, uh, I think in between of stimulus and response, If somebody said there's something there, it's like a promise to freedom. As if, like, we're reminded that we're not just a product of our past trauma or what we've learned so far, that we have the ability to change somehow. But, you know, sometimes when we're dealing with pain, we just feel, oh, this is so sucks. Uh, My life is sucks. But in between that, there is this ability, this freedom that you can choose. Do you want to do this, apa vacuuming as 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 appa, boring task, or you want to change it? You have that freedom, so it's an intriguing promise. I say,
0: yeah. mm-hmm. good promise indeed. Next, we have Phil, and then Jeff.
6: Well, you know, once again, I'll go back to the fact that you, you know you live in many worlds, the world that you want to be in, and the world that imprisons you in a structure that you really don't want to be in. And we don't recognize that that world weighs on us very heavily. So reframing, in, in a sense, is not sufficient because reframing is merely tweaking the thing that you don't want to do and turn it into something that you pretend you like. Whereas reframing is really to liberate yourself from the constructed world that doesn't harmonize with your world. So that you have to build up enough reserves psychologically as well as maybe materially. I myself feel that I don't need the material world as much as the other world will want me to be so that I could walk away if I want to. And walking away is really uh, the way to reframe your position in the world that you want to be in because there's plenty of boring things in the world you want to be in that you uh want to do because you want to achieve success or whatever in, in that world so you've got to liberate yourself from this other world that's actually enslaving you and give you enough uh, enough room to walk away so therefore just keep it in mind. Get ready to walk away if you want to.
0: Thank you. That's a good point. Sometimes it's not even about the reframing, but just walking away from the bad situation. Next up, we have Jeff on his own question, and then Marissa.
9: So um, thank, thank you for that, Phil. I, I actually want to offer a slightly different orientation to it. Um, where, where, of course, you know, there's the option to, to walk away. But, um, but, I, but I think of, of framing as slightly as meaning something a little bit different from that. Um, it's a little bit like Tom Sawyer in the book, um, deciding that uh, rather than, um, you know, that, that whitewashing that fence, uh, you know, pl- that, that work was something a body has to do and play is something a body wants to do. And so he goes about kind of framing the idea of mar- of whitewashing the fence as something that's fun. That he actually starts charging people to do for the great opportunity to, to whitewash that fence. He's completely reframed what is um, what is work to him. Um, another is uh, uh, that another example would be that. Um, I I used to be an avid runner and, um, but I didn't really like running ever before I would start to do it. (laughs) The idea of running was never really attractive to me. And, um, but the phrase that I might, that I started offering myself is, you know, take care of yourself so you can take care of others. That you wanna optimize your health and you've discovered this is one way of doing it as well as giving me, you know, the opportunity for a kind of a moving meditation because I couldn't think of much else other than when I would run. And amazingly enough, so many things would occur to me while I was running that I started carrying a little notebook and pad of paper and and pen in my pocket just to write the stuff down. So I wouldn't have to remember it to write it down later after I was done running. Um, And then last in a thing that was even much harder for me, um, I was responsible for raising the money to support um, an organization that was important to me and I just hated the idea of sort of uh, you know of the sort of prevalent orientation of begging for money but I had also been a funder and I remembered that you know people give money to people that they that they trust and that they like and so if I approached it as I was going to help some people out by giving them somebody that they could trust who might be engaged in something that they would uh, find intriguing and useful, um, who, whom they would like that I was serving them and, um, and that I actually liked um, having conversations that might lead to friendships with people. And so when I was at that conference and I knew I was gonna meet these folks who represented various funding organizations, um, I just turned it around into to see if I can make, see how many friends I can make in this endeavor. Whether it leads to uh, funding or not, and um, uh, and and by and large, uh, it turned out pretty well. So, um, all of those were exercises in reframing, while not walking away from the responsibility or you know or the or the the, the challenge that was in front of me. Um, but they all made it enjoyable and meaningful and even successful. And I think that that what I was able to experience in that reframing was accomplishment and relationships only because I was able to think of it in a different way.
0: Thank you for the clarification. These are just great examples of what it means to reframe. And Julie even gave us another good example here in the chat where she says, it's like saying, I get to go to the dentist, rather than I have to go to the dentist. So we're almost out of time, but Maritza wanted to say something, and then we will close out this meetup.
1: Um, Just really quickly, I wanted to, um, so um, Margaretha and Phil, um, made a comment about our um, choice. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to bring your attention to the section in chapter two on attention as psychic energy. So, you know, remember, we're focusing our attention. What we're really doing is we're focusing our energies. And um, MC states to us, he says, the mark of a person who is in control of consciousness is the ability to focus attention at will, to be oblivious to distractions, to concentrate for as long as it takes to achieve a goal and not longer. And the person who can do this usually enjoys the normal course of everyday life. By that statement, it seems that if we if we are, if we work towards controlling our energy, and where we place our focus, even those mundane day-to-day tasks will be more easily, easily handled. I look forward to reading more and to hear him explain that a little more for us. Thank you, guys. It was nice being here with you today. Thank
0: yeah. I think that was a beautiful quote to end us with. So just a reminder, two weeks from today, 7 p.m., we're going to go into chapter three. It is the chapter where we actually get into the meat of all these characteristics of what flow is. So I'm looking forward to discussing it with all of you. We'll see you in two weeks. This episode may be done, but you can always find more travel ideas and opportunities at Delve Travel. Just visit delvetravel.com. The adventure continues. Ask me why.